Right, cool. Here we go. So, welcome back to an- another episode of the Heidi Podcast. Pa- I am hip hop. You know, who the one and only J Uncle Juju Saint Paul, and who do I have with me in the building? Ish, that's all you're getting. Yo, what's good <laughs> with the delay response? <laughs> Yo, what's good is Papa and Orphis Bogachon for beggars foreign currency recordings. What's good? Man, 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 man. Like real big, big, big horns, like all sound effects, everything, man. Like we are literally joined as he introduced himself by Pavan, like an absolute legend in the hip hop scene. If you don't know, then you've got to get to know. But that's also what we're here for as well, ladies and gentlemen. So if you've never come across or even aware of the great music and just contribution to hip hop, then that's what we're here to bring for you today. So before we get into the conversation and dive into Pavan, bit of his past and then what the amazing like the breadth of the projects and things that you're doing at this um, particular time as well we're going to do our usual um, plugs for what we at the moment let me get my share screen up and here we go so as usual, ch- make sure to check out IamHipHopMagazine.com for all the latest in hip-hop news, updates, and articles. And also you can check out the original I Am Hip Hop podcast, which was then posted on the Global Faction um, site, or should I say YouTube channel, rather. And we're always updating loads of um, great content, always looking out for new music. So as if you've got some tunes you want us to check it out, make sure you go and drop us an email over there. And... We also have the I Am Hip Hop magazine, issue six, which was designed from front to cover by myself, High Creativity, J Uncle Juju St. Paul. We are delivering physical copies to the UK for £2.50 plus a £2 delivery charge. Or you can go get yourself a digital copy. All links can be found on the IamHipHopMagazine.com website or the Instagram page. Or maybe copy yourself some I Am Hip Hop merchandise. We've got the t-shirts, the hoodies, the crop tops. We've got Mama Didn't Raise No Fool. Baby girl puts uh, baby girl super gets some respect and just a general I am hip hop as well. And also just go maybe check out my shop. Got a load of t-shirts and such, hoodies, stickers, headwear, posters, mugs. But make sure you cop yourself some stuff now because I'm gonna be changing and updating that in the next few months, and they will no longer be available. We also have Metrofest, which is gonna be one of the, I think, the first officials still. Uh, hip-hop and R&B event that's happening here in the UK, London of all places, with an absolute massive lineup. I'll be DJing at the Flavor of the Month tent, so make sure if you haven't got yourself a ticket, go get yourself a ticket now. Early birds are on sale. Once they're gone, they're gone. You know what it is. We've got Yo, man, just you can see it, man. Just just see it, man. Check out the metrofest.com and of course, make sure to check us out on the Loud Bass One Hip Hop FM mix and our internet radio show i won't be going live this sunday but i will be back on again next week so make sure to cop us a follow and we're actually looking for people as well so if you want to have yourself a slot get in touch hit me up socials or just go to highcreativity.net and all my links are there so now we've got all of that stuff out the way we can dive into the actual conversation so Pavan, how are we doing man how are you king I'm good, man. I'm living, living, still, still in the game. Still, still feel hungry for it. Still love it. So yeah, good, good. Yeah, man. All blessed, man. Just a pleasure to be here in, a, in the presence of greatness. I think maybe the best way to to put it. I concur, yeah. definitely, man. Well, That's well, why we're global. We're global, man. Always, always. <laughs> 
So where so where is it that you're situated um, at the moment then? Right now I'm in Dubai. I've been here since uh, since March last year actually. I actually actually moved out of London end of two thousand was it two thousand end of two thousand and nineteen. Left England. We did like the final foreign beggars tour and then uh, moved got here and then moved to India to get my new project popping because it's got a very India leaning edge. So just uprooted everything, took everything, moved to India. And I was there for about two months and then pandemic kicked off. They were closing the airports. I hadn't moved into a place yet. So I was like, all right, this if this if they're saying this is what it is, this could get sketchy. So my family live out here in Dubai. So I just said, let me just jump on a plane before they locked off. And yeah, it's cool. I mean, I think I could have stayed longer and I don't think it would have been a disaster earlier. But um, yeah, I'm grateful to be in a situation where I could just come back to my family home and just mm -hmm. yeah be here, situated here for a minute. That's dope still. Right, so I like I like to get to know the people I'm speaking with and also for the people that watch this as well. Um, so what was life like for you growing up? Growing up? Okay, let me just, okay, we're taking this way back in it, shit. Growing up in Dubai was interesting in the 80s. And uh, I think, like, we moved here, like, my parents are first generation over here. But where we're from in India is a place called Sindh. So after the British left and the partition happened, Sindh is now in Pakistan. So our, both of my parents' family side was displaced. So my mom was born in South India. And she grew up there for a little while. And my dad's family moved to Lebanon. My granddad actually moved to Libya and then Armenia. And then they had some family in Lebanon. So we moved over there. And my dad was born in Lebanon. And then the war broke out there. So he sent kids to school in England. So my dad was in boarding school in Wales in the 50s uh, for a while. And then Dubai kind of cropped up as this new, new kind of hub center port where shit was happening. So they shifted the business over here and set up business here that like... Well, I think it's exactly 50 years ago now. So um, my mom, she moved to San Francisco in the, when she was 14. So she grew up in San Francisco in the 70s. So she is definitely responsible for all the rock and roll that's come into my life. And uh, she met my dad over here in Dubai. It wasn't an arranged, it wasn't an arranged marriage, but it was like an arranged introduction because the families knew each other from like the old country, you know? So. Anyway, they met each other, they got on, they liked to party, etc. etc. Bang, that's me, 1980 out here. <laughs> yeah, so growing up in Dubai was interesting in those times because it was like a little town, you know, it was a little like there was like one fast food place, there was like one hairdresser, you know, like where I live now. We moved into this house in 86, there was like it was all sand track outside. Now there's more metropolis that way than that way. It's 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 insane. So it was, it was, it was nice. It was nice. Cause it was, everything was like really affordable. Everything was really safe. Like, you know, you could leave your car open, run in the street. You can still kind of do that now. So it was a, it was a nice, comfortable, like, you know, like wholesome upbringing. Um, it's kind of complex being an Indian person in Dubai. Cause even till today, I don't have like a nationality and, uh, there's loads of different diasporas. I think Dubai is a really special place because obviously it just kind of came into this, it just kind of came into existence and everybody here is a very like multicultural mix from the jump so all the people that i grew up with are from different nationalities so bruv i've got english friends who speak with an indian accent tell indian jokes it's hilarious like it's so it's like the like the amalgamation <laughs> bruv, the amalgamation of sense of humor is like the deepest thing that i think i've got coming out of this place and like the kind of multicultural relationships so um 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think what what it is like back then. Obviously, it's like an Islamic country, so um, things were a bit. I think things were a bit stricter back then in terms of the the kind of entertainment or like um, the entertainment. When I say entertainment, in terms of like the movies or the the music that you listen to, so the heavy censorship laws back then. So, in terms of getting music over here, there was actually this company called Thompson Originals, and uh, basically they just mass pirated everything from the billboard and then they repackaged it and sold it. So, and it was just like, for example, if you went and got a Cosmopolitan magazine from the supermarket, any cleavage would be censored out, blacked out with a black marker, all of those kinds of things. So it was, it was interesting. So in terms of like getting access to like subcultural stuff, it'll be like what everybody brought in from when they were traveling in or kids traveling out. So it was a big heavy, like tape swapping, Oh, what are you into? This is the new band. This is the new. This is the new. You know, all the, you know, all the subculture shit would be like people would leave, bring it, and then it would be shared. But then, because like they were mass copying everything from the Billboard, there was points where Two Live Crew was in the Billboard charts, or NWA was in the top hundred, right? So that would kind of sneak through. So we would find all of these little gems, and that would kind of be like our entry point into a lot of the lot of the culture types of things. So I remember, like you know, like my first real. I mean, like we grew up on, as I said, we grew up on rock and roll music because my mom is like a heavy metal girl from San Francisco. But in terms of what pop music was at the time, it was like, come on, it was like we had like Michael Jackson. That was, you know, that was set speed for us. So that was our first foray into understanding what, you know, then soon after that, you'd see Beat Street movie, then you'd make the connections, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So um, music then was beautiful because like even up to like i say like you know the mid 90s like what would be in the charts you'd still get wu-tang in the top 10 but you'd have pantera in the top 10 you'd have nirvana you'd have pearl jam you'd have blah 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 you'd have bjork so all the all the pop music was real substantial fucking creative in individual stuff so that was a heavy influence on us as well um i don't know where i'm going with this really I think I just kind of gave you a long ass answer there. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it was quite special because we all kind of relied on each other for the information. And because we were kind of like, it, we, we didn't really have scenes around us. It kind of made us fall in love with them a bit more. And all, your, all the access points would be this underground stuff that we would be sharing. So I think that the essence of it was really crystallized in our mind without kind of being sidetracked about situational shit that was going on. You know, so there's pro- there's pros and cons to not having a scene because obviously there's when you know when we had a rap group when we started there was us there was us and there was another rap group so there wasn't really any serious competition but at the same time not having a lot of superfluous shit going on that you could be kind of oh yeah I went to open mic and killed it and that was good enough you know you actually like compared the art you're making to the final product that was on the CD so that was the standards that you were setting for yourself you know so yeah. Wow. Then, uh, real fast, touching on in Dubai, I'm a person that loves history. Um, yeah. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong by going with this, but I see Dubai as like the current Mesopotamia when you have a flux of people coming to Dubai and you see the influence of different people and different um, nationalities, yeah. um, ideas, infusion in that world in that part of the world. Do you? Do you agree, or can you touch on I, that a little? Bit? Yeah, I, I agree to to a certain degree. I think because um, I think I think that's that's definitely here. But I think also the, a little strange thing about it is that it's quite transient because people come on short term contracts. 
So people will be here for a little while, kind of find their circle, or people come and find their, their diaspora, stick with their, their diaspora, and then leave again. So um, a lot of the things that come also leave just as quick. So, for example, one big thing is, like, I think a, a big influence on on culture really kind of, like, crystallizing in a place and growing and flourishing starts with the kids in school, you know? So the thing is, when everybody, when kids turn 18 here, especially... You know, until about 15 years ago, there weren't any universities here. So as soon as they turned 18, they would either have to get a job or go to another country for university. So a lot of the things and kind of cool subcultural kind of things that would start would just get stopped dead in their tracks. So scenes have taken a lot longer time to grow and come about and have like a like a historical substance to them. But um, I think uh, and another thing that's interesting about the place is that it's like kind of hyper capitalistic over here so there's a lot of people here straight for the business so there's a lot of kind of business happening on that level um but in terms i don't i, I mean i say that but there, there are a lot of longer term people here and i think you can say that it's kind of like a mesopotamia in that respect but so is so are other big places like if you take london for example london is mm. so beautiful in terms of the levels of integration and kind of cultural confluences that happen you know so um I think you get obviously get different exposure here and yeah yeah but i think because what i I worry about is i know one of the big things here in the states is gentrification especially if you go to Oakland, new york that you buy uh by that term that means a lot of that historical landmarks are gone because of it stories and the history of it is gone but i think with Dubai, again, you have that mixed fusion, but again, yeah. you don't lose the history of it. You get what well, I'm saying? Yeah, kind of. I guess because basically the history of the place was so small, right? So kind of the globalization, and this was kind of globalized and gentrified from the jump. You know, this was like kind of like an old British colony, but then before that, they used to use the rupee. So it was kind of from the jump it was like the aim of it was to gentrify it and turn it into what it was what it is so i think um that when it comes to like the local culture over here with the with the emirati arabs they've been really good at retaining their their presence and not losing their heritage because um even in the way that the businesses are set up here when i was growing up any business that wanted to open up here they would have to have a 51 percent local partner you know in the business so that's kind of kept the families relevant, kept them, you know, so that's the, that's the way that it's worked. And even until about 15 years ago, you couldn't own a property here. So all of the, all of the land and everything was owned by the local families. And they would set up places like the free zones where, you know, multicultural corporations could come and own a warehouse, own a business in the free zones for the import export kind of stuff. But generally in the cities, everything is controlled by the local population, which are still only about eight, nine, 10% of the whole population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. And I that's, didn't know that. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah for real. Because I mean, when it comes to just Dubai, we just see Dubai. So it like now yeah. it just seems like even the word itself is just pay. It's just made of gold or diamonds or something. Yeah. Like, you know, but it's actually. <laughs> and you know what? I love they've done some good marketing, bro. When I came to school in England when I was a kid, that they used to take the piss out of me. They're like, "What? Do you, do you live in a tent? Do you have camels?" <laughs> <laughs> well and funny enough and you actually just helped the uh, with the segue with that as well so thank you so 
you've spent your younger life in Dubai, um, obviously yeah. heavy censorship, but yet you're still, well, it goes to show how the pirate scene does have its benefits as yeah. well as, you know, the negatives in the industry, because, you know, you've just filled with so much music and content. So what was the transit um, transition like um, coming from Dubai, other than kids doing the usual kids stuff and taking the mick? Um, yeah. But come now in now you're in England, like what was life like for you with with that? It must have been a big culture shock in some sense. Kind of, I mean, not really, because like my like we okay. traveled a lot when we were kids. And we went to British school over here. There was a culture shock when I first moved to England when I was ten years old. Because mm. um, my because my, my dad went to boarding school when he was ten years old. He had this thing that when you're ten, you're going to go to boarding school. So us growing up the way that we did, with my mom being from California, being like yo Transformers bed sheets, Nike trainers, da 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 da, da all of this <laughs> stuff, like eating fucking, you know, you know what it is, like speed racer, all of that shit, and then. Suddenly getting sent to this school, which was like going back a hundred years in time, like having to wear like shorts in the winter with garters and then, you know, 60 year, 60 year old, super Christian, racist fucking teachers and all of that kind of shit. It was definitely, that was a culture shock because I think the culture that came down from, from the teachers to the kids was like, it was, that's when I really learned where like, it was, it was kind of like a real like Lord of the Flies meets like an old Borstal kind of prison film from England. That was the jump, you know? That's what it, that's, that was the energy, that was the feeling. So like being in a situation where you couldn't trust anybody and, you know, just that old school shit. Like that was the, the year I went to that school was the year that they stopped caning kids as well, you know? So you could see the kind of mentality that was there. So that was what it was like in the beginning. But then, you know, that was like by 93, 93 when I went to, the, the next school things changed a bit but still but then i moved back to dubai in 96 and one of we've been into music i kind of got into graffiti in about 94 and that was when i was really started immersing myself into what hip-hop culture is and what it means and individuality and style and you know all of that kind of stuff and beyond liking or like and knowing why you know rappers are so different and they're so you know like they're so unique and etc but um in terms of like actually starting to make hip-hop music it wasn't until about 96 when i'd moved back to dubai here and i met a few other kids met this one guy from this there was a guy here i knew he, who, from, from i was a kid here called mustafa who'd been living in seattle who'd come back and he was also into graffiti basically we went to this university over here and everybody was hella generic and then we were just like the weirdos that stuck out and it was like oh that guy was you know, like, you know, you can see who your people's are before. Yeah. How, how they were wearing and shit, you know? So, you know, this is before culture was gentrified, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, so, anyway, so we linked up and then it turns out they were, they were just into music and everything just as much. So, we just started kicking it. And then this other kid from, he's like a half Iranian, half Italian, Italian kid, moved over from La Jolla, from San Diego, and he had to leave because it was just like, all the crip gang shit, gang shit was popping off. So his parents just said, get the fuck out of here and just brought him over here. So we linked up, but he was heavily into his music. And then we would just be kicking it, doing whatever. And then I was, I remember I was with them one day and then we were just hanging out. And then they both just pulled, they were, they were started ciphering, but then they pulled out their own lyrics. And then that's the first time I heard one of my close people was kicking it. And I was like, Oh, I could, I could do that, but I didn't have any bars, right? So I was just like, let <laughs> me home. I literally was like, all right, cool, guys, I'll leave. I'll see you tomorrow. So I literally came home, like, right? And yeah, that was kind of like, 
Yeah, ah, fuck, that was like, that was 90, yeah, 96, 97, so I've literally just been sucked in since then, man, like, yeah, so, sorry, man, I kind of, I, I kind of digressed, you were asking about, so when I, so that was 96, and then, you know, so there was, what what the culture like was, what it's like over here, there was pure house parties, and then what people would do, they would run out ballrooms, like, you know, somebody for their birthday, and set up a sound system in there, and all of that stuff, and then, DJs were playing hip hop, but then we were like, all right, cool. We, we, we started, we put a show together, we started recording tracks and then we go to, it would just be house parties. There was this other crew and there was this other crew who didn't make music, just like to thug it out and just whatever. But anyway, so that was the vibe. And then soon after that, like um, around the, it was interesting because when I started rapping then I'd already, fortunately I'd already heard like, you know, like the Brotherhood, Black Twang, other UK stuff. So when I started rhyming, I never felt like I had to, Put an American accent on or do any kind of you know emulation type of shit. So it was just straight natural for me. And then um then my brothers were still in England, they would come back, they bring like, oh, this is the new roots maneuver, this is the new mud fam stuff, you know. So that was happening. And then all and then all my friends who were still in school in England would come back here for half term because their family would be here and then started bringing all the jungle tapes. I started hearing all the rave tape packs, the one nation, the roast and from I heard like started hearing like Stevie Hyper D, Skipper D, Shabba, all of that stuff going on. But kind of like the end product of the rave happening, you know, just like being in the situation. I don't know. I was just, I was, again, I was just like sucked in again. So my other friends over here, like my friend Dag, who's the original producer for Foreign Beggars, he already had his turntable so that we just started ordering jungle records. We were like, fuck it. It's making little jungle mixtapes. And then we're like, all right, cool. We need to start throwing some raves. So again, started renting out sports halls. And this, this is like 97 in Dubai. And Everything was super commercial here leading up to that point. It was like, you go out, there'd be cover bands playing Hotel California again, kind of situation. Mm. Or the radio DJ playing the top 40 tracks at the club that he played on the radio that day, kind of shit, you know, it was that small. But then, uh, so then in about 96, 97, all of these, this, this youth culture was starting to pop off. And then there was a couple of rave crews here. There was this crew called the Strike Crew who were like Psytrance part, people were throwing parties out in the desert. They were a bit older than us. And then there was this like kind of Ibiza, UK Ibiza kind of crew throwing these other parties called Fire Island at the ski club. It's like a little kind of, it's a bit more low key place where they would just rent it out and then just throw these raves and they would, bruv, it was kind of sick because then there were these super mad underground parties happening out with like, you know, kind of shit that you would see like at a freak party in London. And at the same time, there was this other crew for an Ibiza shit, and they'd be like flying out all the drag queens and all the ballroom shit. And it was like, these motherfuckers are here. So like, we started throwing our little raves and just go flying, getting all of those people in. And because we couldn't actually throw parties in clubs here because we were underage then. This is like, we were like 17, mm. 16, 17, 18. So we'd have to rent it out so it looked like a private party and then just be like, do the flex, set the sound system up, and all of that. So yeah, that was cool, man. So like, by the time I moved to listen, by the time I moved to London in '99, I was ready, bro. Like, I'd been kind of like living in this scene in my head and trying to emulate <laughs> everybody. So by the time I got to London, I was like, "Yo, where's that? Where's that?" You know. So yeah. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, you can't I'm, stop you, you can't stop the story there. <laughs> Please continue. So you know you've taken you've taken you've taken, you've, taken, you've, taken, you've, taken, you've literally been a part of something I never even knew existed, first of all. So wow. Um and but yeah, please, please roll on, man. 
Don't give us a to be continued. Please go on. Bro. All right, cool. All right, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, I, was into, I told you I was into the graffiti as well from before. So, like, I went a, a lot of the friends I was in touch with and places like, you know, I just, you know, we, we'd be sending, you know, we'd be painting and then sending, sending each other letters and pieces and shit that we don't like graffiti pen pals and that stuff was happening. So just stayed in touch with a lot of those people. And I went to school with Arnick from Dark Circle. And when I came back, they were, they signed to Natty's label, you know, like, so like, so mm. through him, I met Natty and Manage and all the South London crew and Cope and all of them, man. And then at the same time, like, um, yeah. So like when I came back, they were making music and I was so excited because I grew up with Arnick, but he didn't really know me as a rapper or anything. So when I saw him again, I was like, yo, you know? So that, that was it. Literally, get to London for you. I went to London for uni, but I went there for music essentially. So it was just open mic, just go to all the open mics that were happening. And, you know, there was a time, it was like just before deck effects had started, it was like magnet traction. And then it was like early days of Kung Fu. And then obviously trying to do the, when we moved from Dubai to London, like our main aim was to like start a drum and bass label, Dag and myself. So kind of as soon as we got there, it was like, yo, just go to rave, see pirate stations, this, that, try and get on. It was literally just like, then days in the jungle raves, it was like, you had to fight your way to the microphone. So it was just on that mission of going and just like, you know, Mike, Mike, you know, kind of situation and just, you know, you know, you know what it was. So yeah. just, just doing that as much as possible. And like, I thought I found like, Hip hop scene was super chill because like everybody at that at that point because jungle had popped off so much every man in the dance was an MC so there was like a fucking queue of people you had to fight through but the hip hop scene was kind of a bit more laid back and a bit more about sharing a love for the art and kind of communicating so yeah just hit started hitting up the open mics and then that's why I just literally just go on a mic you know go I mean. It was, for me, I was coming at it with a competitive thing, not being from London and also coming into, it's a competitive thing anyway, you know, you need to show out when you're stepping up. So um, we'd do that and just met everybody. Like Apollo was one of the first guys I went to see to get beats from before Dag had moved to London. And um, yeah, that was it really. And just networking, connecting, just being out and about and figuring out how I'm going to do this. So the first two years I was in London, I was at uni. And uh, actually maybe, no, yeah, about two years I was at uni and then Dag moved and then we start, I wasn't at UCL, he was at UCL, but I knew that they threw parties there. So I kind of got onto the UCL ENTS committee so that we could start throwing drum and bass raves there with the UCL money. So started doing that and then we ended up booking like Ed Rush, you know, like Andy C, Groove Rider, Optical, all of that kind of stuff and just getting in there. And then I left uni to do music full time because it just got to a point where I was fucking my uni up because the music thing was happening. So, uh, yeah, so I left, yeah, left to do music. And uh, I did one course at, uh, I did this like dance music production course at SAE. And then again, again, it was just like an educational, weird, fast situation until the last day where uh, this guy came in to give a lecture. It's a guy called Lee Codrington, actually. And I got to shout him out. And he was, uh, he was kind of related to the delegates of culture family from Cambridge. And uh, he was a bit older, right? And he had like a clothing, like a like a hip hop clothing company, and he was running the record. He was helping running the business side for them. And it was just like, what you what you guys want to know? I was like, yo, how do we start? Like, how do you get vinyl pressed, put records out, and that stuff? He was like, oh, okay, cool. He literally just like gave me the fucking literally that lesson. I was writing for two hours. He literally gave me the blueprint to leave and start 
okay, this is the journey. How, how are we going to get these records out and start an official rap group slash label, you know? Because I think at that point, we was trying to get, like, I think it was about the end of 2001, 2000, yeah, two, end of 2001, the, the, the hip-hop music we were making was sounding legit enough now. The drum and bass oh. was still sounding kind of whack. We hadn't got our shit right there because that's like, it's slightly different. We were still trying it and going to music house and cutting dub plates and throwing raves on, but the music itself wasn't hitting. But then the hip-hop stuff we were making was just on the money already. So, all right, cool, this is ready to go. Let's start here. And then, yeah, we spent about a year, year and a half trying to get the early foreign beggar stuff signed to different labels. We got fucked around a lot. I mean, it was an interesting time because there was a lot of love and there was a lot of beautiful music and activity happening in the scene. But it was once it got to a kind of position of like, hey, I'm here, let's do this, let's talk business, what, sharing contacts, you know, that kind of stuff, it became like a fucking closed situation. It was like, you know, there was people, and there was some people who were willing to help and some people being really open and willing to, you know, being open arms, but they didn't really have like the, the industry knowledge to get, you know, to get your shit popping. But then there's people who did, who were just like completely blocked. I'm not gonna get into names and all of that shit. And then, um, yeah, we had this weird situation where we had this girl who was managing us in the right at the beginning. She's like, I want to be your manager. And I was like, all right, cool. So anyway, so we're working. And then she calls me up one day, like when I was over here at home with my family, it was like Christmas time. And she's like, yo, we got you a two, two EP release deal with Groove Attack because Groove Attack was the big hip hop distributor that's doing all the US stuff mm. and the good UK stuff. And they were European based so they could blow up, open up in the European market and all of that shit. So she calls us up, yeah, I got this deal for you. So I'm like with my family, I was like, I crack the champagne, everything. And now it turns out, turns out it was complete bullshit. She was just lying. She just made it up to make it seem like she was doing something. So and that that was that was the that was the point where something just clicked in my head and I was like, we're doing this on our own. This is this is ridiculous. Mm. These chicks sitting on it for a year trying to fucking speak to people. Other people telling us we needed to put dancers in our crew and stuff. I'm like, what are you doing? You know? So anyway, so um yeah that point that was i think that was the real birth of foreign beggars so because she messed us around i was like you need to front the money for the first record so i got her to pay for the record and then obviously flipped it and then yeah that was that was when we started and that was the beginning of the journey of uh, foreign that's, beggars. that's sick man yeah. for real for real but it's like it's very you hear it a lot especially if you're really into the scene but you it's yeah. just it still amazes me how many artists do get completely dicked around and whether or not that's from people who's on the ones who are actually running the show or the ones to be able to get you commercially out there or people that literally just trying to trying to prove that there's something more than they're not but luckily you didn't you know go by the by and we're here having a conversation now um so what i was gonna say because um how, so you said that's the beginning of Foreign Beggars. What I'm interested in is how did you meet um, Metropolis? Like, how did that connection come about? This is deep. So, right, I met, I was, so when I was at uni in London, there was this other kid in my uni who was like the only other hip hop kid I met right in the beginning. He was a, this Filipino American dude from Jacksonville and he was a turntablist. He's like, yeah, I'm a turntablist. I couldn't believe that like, in this random uni, I've met somebody who was so deep. He's like, yeah, we just, we're going over the DMC championships in Denmark next week. I'm like, what? Anyway, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, that level of in the game. I was like, oh. Anyway, so, basically, uh, 
his sister was in in, in school and um, she was doing a play. So she she asked me to do the lights for it. So I was doing the lights, and uh, so Gizrock, he was Gizrock for the mixologist, basically. So he had met James, no names. I'm not. I don't know where they met, but they used to go around to James's house to cut, and. Uh, so James was doing the sound for the show, for the, was doing the Wizard of Oz play. So I was doing the lights and then no name's doing the sound, but he brought a vest axe and a turntable and the Wizard of Oz wax and he was like scratching all the, all the sound effects in the play. So we started talking. Then he started telling me about, yo, because he was at Queen Mary's University and he was like, yo, there's this guy Tao Ride, he's got Metropolis, we're in this group called Focus Few. So he was just telling me about them. So we just kind of stayed in touch kind of casually, like, because Gizrock was in my uni and Gizrock, he had some drama with the immigration shit that so he got deported. But then I'd see James around here and there. And then uh, when, actually, so after I left that uni, when I went to SAE, actually, no, taking it even back further. Sorry, when I first met James, I went around to his house just for a cipher because he was inviting all of the guys he'd been telling me about. So Ebo was one of the guys that I met there when I first, when the first time I went to his house. So it was me and it was Tao Rai and Ebo was there. And I think Jordan Carnage was there as well, the guys from Low Tech Hi-Fi. And yeah, so it was just just kicking it, new rappers, just having a cypher. And then we just got on really well. Then Ebo, he got shifted out to Ghana because his mom was, because he was smoking too much weed and his mom was like, man, you're wasting your life. So then they moved to South Africa. She was like, I want to take you to South Africa. Like the fucking weed is popping in South Africa. Anyway, so... <laughs> So he went there, but when he came, when he came back from South Africa, he was at SAE at the same time. So I, met, I bumped into him a couple of times, but he had no recollection of who I was. As you know, this uh, timelines are a bit wrong. So SAE tried to chat to him a couple of times. He had no idea who the fuck I was, and then he went to South Africa. And then when he came back, that was when like foreign beggars had. We'd already put our first twelve out, and then we were making. Actually, yeah, it was around the time we put our first twelve out. And then he heard the new shit that we were making. Like, I think he'd heard the track that I'd done with Task Force, the Coded Rhythm Talk track. And then that he started bugging off that because we were both very inspired by the whole company flow kind of flex, you know? So that whole Def Jobs thing was like, he heard it straight. As soon as he heard it, it was like, yeah, you know? So we started talking and then, um, yeah, so he calls me up one day and he's like, yo, um, I think I'm on your road. I was like, all right, cool. Look, I'm not there right now but I always lose my keys. So I always keep the window open. So I was like, there's, it's number 27, Hartham Road. There's a foreign beggar sticker on the window. Just jump in, just jump in the yard and dad will be back soon and I'll be back later, right? So he just comes in the yard and he's sitting there and then dad comes, dad comes home from uni. He's like, <laughs> he's like, no, no, dad told me to come in. He said, it's all good. You've got beats. Makes it so I come okay. so basically they made a tune and I left and I came back later and I heard the tune and I was like, yo, this is mad. So I called him up straight away. And then we started speaking and then um yeah, we just stayed in touch. And then uh he was with my boy Tuin and I had a show, it was one of the like I think it was the second or third ever foreign beggar show we did at Cargo. And we were well, I think we were opening for Black Twang. And then there was another show, because the show before that I did, and I brought my brethren up, who's like to be a hype man. We practiced, did the show one day, two days, everything. Day of the show, he got so drunk, he forgot everything. He fell off the stage, all of this shit. 
Second time, check it, check this, check this. Second time, right? Second time, second show, yeah. Two is picking me up for the show. He's like, yo, I've got Ebo with me. Is, is it cool if he comes? I was like, yeah, of course, wicked. I was like, ask him if he wants to hype me for the show. And I was like, so, so I'm getting in the car at Caledonian Road, driving to Old Street, four tracks, mm. put them on. And I just went through the tracks with him, showed him, showed him where the ad libs are, showed him the hooks, everything. Come to do the show, jump on the set. Every single ad lib was smashed, hooks recited, everything in a, in a, in like a, in like a twelve minute car ride, bruv. So after that, and I heard the tra- heard the tracks that he's made with Dag, I was like, this is the guy in it, like this is the guy. So yeah. So at that point, I was like, oh, I had to come back to life or something, and I was like, it was just, I just couldn't let it go, and I just called him up. I was like, bruv, just join the crew in it, and I think by this time we'd made most of the asylum speakers up, and that's why he's not on it so much. So. There was one track, so I think his 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 verse, which is actually the first verse on Asylum Speakers, was the last track that we recorded for the whole project, and yeah, that was that was how Evo came to the crew. That's, yeah, that's, that's dope, man. Yeah, um, that's cool. I know you got a lot more questions because your your head is going like going yeah, like, bro. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, because it's just it's just, do you know what it is? It's just like. Especially when you're an admirer of the scene, but you always wanted to, you want to see the backward workings of things. But just even that connection, like, and also I just love the fact is like, you know, Dan comes back and he's like, who's this random black dude just sitting in, sitting in my yard kind of thing? But no, it's cool. Let's make a track. <laughs> Let's do this. But just to go, just to go out. <laughs> but yeah, man, because, um, because I mean, by the IG's, um, IG side of stuff, because I mean, just being so much going on, as we all know, you know, we're all living through this kind of period of time. I didn't realize that he um he passed away um a year ago on April the 18th. I mean, how have you been coping with that? All right, man. It goes in it goes in like it goes in waves, I guess, you know. I think it's 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 interesting because we had like we had a couple of really deep conversations beforehand, you know, and he was very spiritual about his kind of presence here on earth and in the universe. You know what I mean? So we had some really deep conversations about Gaia and kind of being a part of a bigger energy anyway, which is kind of weirdly transit helped me transition through it. You know, I think um, also, I think what helped me kind of deal with it a lot was not being in London well, like not being around everybody and everything and kind of being like, everybody's like, incidental grief counselor basically not having like hundreds of different energies coming at me like it was it was definitely very heavy because it's something he's a public figure and you know he's like and he needs to be celebrated in the right way so there's managing all of that stuff which is quite i don't know i, I mean for me I, I i found it really weird how i was able to be like deeply emotional about things but then at the same time just be deeply you know, like straight functional and pragmatic about things but just have this kind of understanding that was going on in the background. I think, I don't know, I feel like on a deeper level, like something that I haven't, because everyone is, everyone kind of said to me, like, have you taken time? Have you taken space to mourn and all of that kind of stuff? But for me, it's like, I that, that moment hasn't really like presented itself and I didn't want to force it. So, you know, I don't think there's like some unresolved shit going on, but for me, it's like, I don't know, especially like kind of at the time, and our like histories and friendship and legacy is so intertwined, you know, that it's like, it's not something I'm just going to wrap and put in a box, you know, and it's not, that's not really what it is for me, you know? So 
yeah, it's kind of, I know that there's, there's still stuff and processing that I have to do with it and understanding like, yeah, I th he's a, he's a complex, complex fellow in his relationship with his art and then how things are presented. So we're very, very different in that respect. So me ha having to make a lot of decisions, I've had to like kind of just tap into like knowing what he would want, what is acceptable, where I can make a judgment call on something, where I know that even if he doesn't, you know, if I actually asked him or went into it, he would get into like, be able to judge where I can make a judgment call on something as well. And I think like finding myself in a place where I'm comfortable with that has been good. It's still complex and I still feel like, mm. you know, there's a lot of work to do in terms of the work he was doing. Like he's got, he's got an album that needs to come out, which is, which needs to be finished now. He's also got his old works. Like he had an album that he did in 2004, five, that time, which never came out, which is also sitting there, which I need to, get into shape and figure out how to drop properly. And, you know, there's, you know, there's also like his, his son, who's a godson. So I'm not in the country at the moment. So like, you know, like he's, he's, he's 10, 11 now. So it's like, you know, I need just, yeah, there's just lots of interesting things to navigate. I think like when somebody passes, you can see for me, there's never like, I'm never on like, so, Oh, what if we did this? Could have died? It's, it's not the reality is this is the reality. And this is exactly what it's, mm however tragic or however uh, like like abstract it is, it is what it is and this is what we have to deal with now. But when something like that happens to someone, it kind of puts their whole life in perspective. You know, it's like you can see what the fight was, what the struggle was, you know, what the work was, what the passion was. And there's still a lot like, it's, it's, there's still a lot of things that I'm still understanding and learning because we were so different, we're so different and we'd come at things in such a different way. So even there's conversations that, we had about things where, you know, conversations done, moved on, things like click in my mind and I'm like, oh shit, that's where his head was at, you know? So that kind of stuff and yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's, it's even, it's, it's so deep because like the way that he writes and every decision he makes with his creativity is like, he understands that this is intrinsically linked to his legacy as an artist, you know? Whereas for me, which is what's, which is different, I'm like, a bit more like situational, like whatever's going on, like, you know, so, you know, like some of the crazy shit, like that I've said, if somebody listens to that after um, I've passed, they'll be like, who the fuck was this guy? But you know, for me, it's like, <laughs> it's situational entertain, it's entertainment, you know, and that's kind of like how I approach things, you know? So when I go back and listen to a lot of his stuff, it just hits differently, you know, cause he's, I know that there's a bunch of shit that he wrote that was supposed to be listened to after he passed away. So it's just like, I don't know, I'm getting, I'm getting like, you know, goosebumps, thinking, you know, even saying this shit, you know, like I'm feeling his energy and presence when I'm having this conversation, with, you know? Ah, yeah. gang. I appreciate That's you um, sharing that story because I know it is, it's um, a very emotional conversation to have. So thank you for um, talking, um, bringing that up. But oh, also I see, I see complexity as a beautiful thing. I yeah. see it as like a bunch, a thousand of pieces of puzzles. It's not about when you put it together, you see the beautiful imagery of it. It's yeah. more about how you put it together. Cause you can, mm -hmm. can reflect to it. You're like you see the picture, but you can go back to the steps of how you put it together. So I, I, I agree with you. I see the beauty and complexity. Yeah, man. 
Yeah, it's yeah, complex. Like, for, for real, for real. I mean, what, I, I, even from just from from hearing, because I've been mean, obviously before the interview, listening to previous interviews and finding articles, and and I just found like, um, yeah, he just he definitely he, the way you described him is right on the mark. He just has that kind of air and that almost knowledge about um yeah. about himself as well. Because even your performances and such, it's just like, and the way uh, you can see the differences between you two, but then it's almost, that's the reason why it works yeah. so well. Like, and yeah, man, for real, I'm resting, resting power, resting music as um, Bazooka Joe Gotti, you know, yeah. says as well on that side of things. But what I find also quite, um, well, which is just just mad is like, he you've lo you dropped your last Foreign Beggars album, literally just before this whole thing this this whole experience had happened so i'll i was lining that up is kind of Bro, a bit it's, yeah it's it's mad like it's so so weird how i think like i don't know it's like because i so with the, with the last foreign beggars album aibo wanted to do his own project anyway but he works in a very like he works in a very specific way he needs to kind of zone into something like really zone in and not kind of deviate from it. So we kind of made space to like take a step back from foreign beggars and kind of give him as much space to do his own projects as we could. But then even then when we, you know, even doing the stuff that we had to do for foreign beggars, he would have to completely change his mindset where I'm like super ADD. I could be working on a jungle tune and a deep emotional tune and something else at the same time where he's like really needs to zone into something for it to be what it, you know, everything that he can make it. Um, so we decided at that point, well, to the end of 2018, after Tutu Karma album came out, we decided that he kind of wanted to take space to do it. So we just said, all right, cool. We're just going to drop four big singles this year and a little project. But then even that was getting a bit complex because he wasn't, because just balancing like not doing shows, having to figure out new income streams also with the family and new music and all of that stuff is, you know, like, you know, you just get caught. And plus like, you know, there's a lot, that's the first time in, however 17 18 years that like he's got freedom to just live his life and not be tied into this mad foreign beggars thing that's been going on you know so mm. like uh, yeah so kind of like we decided at that point like yeah he decided well i say he decided he was like yeah i think we should stop the group and at that point i was like okay and he said we should make this our last album tour it and call it a day and at that point i was like all right but i thought about it and i was like Oh, bro, I don't want to stop this group. This is my life, you know what I mean? So then, you know, in thinking about it and all of that stuff, I think it just seemed like after all the conversations and where we were all at, it just seemed like, you know what, maybe this, it is time to like refresh and kind of go into like really, because for me, like I always got all my creative satisfaction out of doing Foreign Beggars because it was my baby from the start, you know? So I never, that's why I never really felt like if you look up Orifice Volgatron, I mean, I'm omnipresent and all the, the beggar stuff and everything, but you won't really find any artist history or name about that stuff because I never really pushed that as a solo career. But then it's always been in the back of my mind that, you know, I'm kind of having this as a little bit of a buffer to not really put myself on the front line and really put my shit out there, you know? So, and by Ebo making that decision to really go into, immerse himself into what he wanted to be as a solo artist and that, I was like, all right, cool. I kind of saw that as a challenge and kind of like with the whole everything going on in India at the moment and, you know, rap music finally blowing up there where I didn't have to, because before with the Bollywood stuff, you'd have to really like censor it or like dress it up in a certain way or put a bit of bhangra and all, you know, whatever it is, like there wasn't really space for like the raw, raw. Whereas now 
that's completely changed. So I said, okay, cool. This is something I can take this back home now and be, you know, like me all the way. So finding my niche and the fact that I also didn't have to stick to a genre because that was a problem I was having. I was like, I could want to do a boom bap album. Am I going to do like neo soul thing? Am I going to do a dubstep thing? Am I going to do a grime thing? Is it going to be a, you know what I mean? I just couldn't pick, pick a lane, but then when it crystallized in my head that it could, that the India side of it is and I could actually bring all the musical heritage into the beats. I, mean, I didn't have to stick to, I didn't have to, I, I don't have to stick to a genre now. So I can be like, you know, I can drop a banging jungle tune, then drop like a deep boom bap tune. And it's kind of still on brand and working together as an artist. So yeah. So once I've kind of found my niche, I was like, all right, cool. I could, I accepted the fact that, okay, cool. We can put this foreign biggest thing aside, you know, cause that was like, it's a massive thing. It's been my whole, it's been, it's literally been my waking life for the better part of 20 years now, you know, since I've moved to London. Oh. So making that decision and then doing the final album, doing like a final album tour, all of that stuff. And then literally in, at the end of 2000, and actually it was like the fourth, the fourth of, I, remember, I still remember the last time I saw him actually, it was like the 3rd of January. Second or third of January, leaving Australia, we just did our last short show in Melbourne, which was like very bittersweet because it was fucking crazy, and it was like us, DWE, and it was stamina, and it probably was just it was shy effect stamina, shy effect stamina, DWE, and it was us and some local crews, and it was just like this is this is all of it right here. You know? So and it, yeah, it was nice. But then um, so after that, I left, I moved back here, so it was like. The band's over. I've moved country, solo career, mad twenty year circle of like me being back in this house again. Like I left here as a kid to move to London to be a rapper. Done this whole twenty year thing. Suddenly I'm back in Dubai trying to like, hey, I'm trying to be a rapper again. Like do my solo career. So it's like trippy as fuck, you know. So I moved to India, did that to get it popping. Pandemic hits. Come back here, and then obviously. The, you know, the thing with Ebo happened and yeah, man, it's just like, um, yeah, it's just mad. Like every, I, th I think, uh, yeah, just mad, mad changes all happening at the same time. And uh, mm. for me, like the way that I've lived, it's like, I'm used to change. I still have an Indian passport. So I've had loads of immigration issues, having to pick up, uproot, leave country, do this, get stuck in countries. And understanding that like my life can literally just change paths like in two weeks so i have to be ready for it and it has happened many times in the past so i've had to like so in terms of like big uproot changes i'm ready for it you know i'm ready for all of it but um yeah man it's just it's just like all i can say is interesting i think what 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 was really interesting is the fact that I mean, being in a group with another artist who's completely different who has a different approach like all all the foreign beggars music and all the decisions that get made, you know, it's like, it's a balance. It's somewhere in the middle. I don't want to say compromise because we're not compromising anything, but it's like, so we have every single thing needed to be discussed because we were on some different page about it, you know, because also maybe I don't know, I'm Gemini, he's a Sagittarius. There's also this dynamic of like, even before I go to say something to him, he's already like, no, even though I'm, so it's like, we have to, We'd have to do this shit where, like, we'd have to do this shit where, like, you know, so I wouldn't, if I was too gassed for bringing something, bringing a proposal to the table, it would already be, like, a no situation. So I had to, like, figure out how to feed it in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, know, you know, yeah. So, like, what's interesting was that, like, when everything did happen with him, 
is the fact that like we'd finished the group. We didn't have any pending shit going on. All of the business things are closed off. Like we all, we just come back to this place. We were just friends again. You know, he was doing his music thing. I'm doing my music thing and we're just supporting each other and just advice and just kicking it and just like reminiscing and, you know, have a Zoom call and have some drinks and, you know, it was back to this, this real pure place again. And then conversations were really deep and then, yeah, that, that happened. So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that like the, the, there was no like entanglement shit that we had to deal with. And even when, even when he passed, like, it's sad it's sad that when when people when people pass that everybody starts acting different and then like there's loads of just like egos that come into the play ulterior motives agendas money shit but when when it happened with ebo it's like all the friends all the family everybody was involved everybody just kind of assimilated their position and what they need to do and everybody just helped each other and it was just like a pure peaceful facilitation to get it done and like yeah and all of the like all of the stuff that's you know managed in the after, after kind of area of it is, is is stuff that we all care about, we love. So it's like, yeah, I don't know, man. Just got to do it justice in the right way. And it's so it's in, the interesting thing about it is that he's such a private person. So like this whole dichotomy of being like a public public persona, but then being a private person. Like even when Instagram was popping off, he decided, he was like, nah, I don't want to have anything to do with your social media bullshit. I don't want to do it. I don't want didn't want to have anything to do with it. He's like, all right, you know, in terms of like stuff that we had to do, but in terms of being an online personality and, you know, he was not about that. He recently started his own Instagram and, but that was kind of like, you know, just where he shared his thoughts with his intimate group of friends. It wasn't like a promo thing. So even in, in the after of dealing with everything in terms of doing announcements and presentations and how we do this and because like he's so he's so private but then also to not do something properly is almost feels like I'm not honoring you know if I for example if I put a track out that comes out if we don't put the full weight of like the promo it looks like we're not doing it properly so just it's just just weird shit that you have to think about you know what I mean like. So just figuring out what what would what he would be cool with and what is also doing his legacy justice and kind of figuring out where the balance is. Definitely. And also talking about um, the legacy, you know, you you know being a father and a family man, and that transition of being uh, a solo, you know, working on your your project. Can you talk about the importance of love and legacy when it comes to you now? You know, being a solo artist, and then you know. You uploaded a video with the family in a music video um, called. Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't have a family. That's not. He my doesn't have a family. He was talking about Ebo. Oh, Ebo. Ebo's got the son. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> but you know, the, the the video "Breathe." Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was produced by Sunny Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, foot and mouth. But can you yeah. kind of talk about that importance of? Um, that 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 point of just legacy, you know, in from, from transitioning, you know, being with the group now yeah. as a, a solo artist. I mean, for me, it's it's kind of it's interesting. Like, this this difference. I think this is this especially having to have this conversation with you coming from my perspective is a little bit like out there because for me, like, I, I don't know why, but I don't have this like this desire or like this need to feel like I have to carry on my like hereditary legacy, you know, 
like mm-hmm. I, and like I'm 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 40 years old now, right? And I, I'm not like, oh shit, I need to have kids. So, but like those 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 sentiments aren't there. Do you know what I mean? Not not that they aren't there, and not to say that if it didn't happen, it wouldn't be amazing, you know. But for right now, it's like I think even when I think about like my legacy, I I kind of like. I don't know. I, I don't really deal with that too much. I'm more concerned with like the moment and like how, what, how, whatever I'm doing in the here and now and how wavy and out there and what kind of, how I want to flip the game on its head or what we can do to help people in this situation here, you know? So it's kind of, maybe that's a bit short sighted for me. And I've kind of learned in this time to actually have a five year plan. Cause from my move to London, my aim was to get on the mic and start ripping and doing shows and putting our records. And literally that's all that's all I've fucking done until I've come back here. Even when it kind of like I kicked my solo career in, I know how to play the game now. So I know how to start preparing everything 18 months in advance so that when it comes, we can do this and the tour's booked and all of that shit. But like it was only after the pandemic kicked and I was sitting here in on my J's when I decided to start the label, but I really had to think about how am I gonna do this thing from a position of no money? Because I've just spent all, all my money, I've just put it back into my new records and my new, my blue ass running around the world doing crazy shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's where, that's where I've just dropped all my, like literally I'm just like bang, all on black. Like I think I just bang, put it in there and I was ready to start pouring and go. So having done that and sitting here now, like, you know, like not too on top with the funds, but how I was going to start this label and how I'm going to build this and build a team and build a real foundation. And I think, the fact being in this one situation where I can wake up in the same room every day, this is the longest I've woken up in the same room since I was mm. nine years old, bro. Like literally that long. So being able to just be in the same place and kind of really look at one year plan, two year plan, building a fact, like building this, building this record label that I'm building now and looking at the growth of five years, 10 years. Cause again, now I'm 40, like, you know, unless I really kill it, no one's going to be wanting to hear me rap when I'm 50. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, so um, like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think I think this whole I, I yeah, know what you're saying. It is a young man's game, but there's a difference when you're twenty. It's different being twenty years in the game. I would just starting to rhyme at fifty. That's a two yeah, different yeah, no, no, situation. No, no, no. Yo, listen, as long as Buster Rhymes is still there doing this thing, I have top lunch. Anything the fuck I want, bro. But um, well, no, what I was saying is like actually, right? Because like in my life, all I've looked at is like we're going to put like the, the next three months of getting the record done and putting it out or the next year. And also with that, it's like, you know, not really making sure the foundation and the back end is properly tied up, you know, because it also like living in England was complex for me at the time because I had to live there on a tourist visa. So I couldn't be there on legit circuit. You know, it's just all of this mad navigation, being able to just the amount of bureaucracy that it took just to get the visas, to get to the shows and put the records out was like, I was at capacity, you know, but, um, mm. Yeah, so I don't know what I was saying. But yeah, so the first time I've actually looked at like having a long term plan and understanding that, which is pretty mad for for a forty year old to not really have had like any kind of real long term goals. So coming back to legacy, like I don't know, I'm just kind of too wrapped up in the moment, really, and uh, I don't feel like I'm in like. I mean, you rise to any challenge that comes about, you know. And I think humans are resilient and effective, and I think I've got whatever it takes to do it, you know, if other people have done it in the past, but um, yeah, like this whole project is my baby right now. And that's kind of what I'm doing. And I know, you know, growing up and, you know, do you get kind of pressure from the family? Like, like when, when are we going to get a, 
we didn't try it. They tried, you know, like, as I said, as I, as I said, my, my parents are they're like, you know what? My brother had two daughters, right? Okay. So they're cool. They're, they're cool, you know? My mom's, my, since I've been here, my mum's trying. She's like, so what's, what's going on? What's going on? You know, but they're cool. So like, you know, they, like, my, you know, my mom got married when she was mad young and it was not necessarily a pressure situation, but, you know, she kind of found herself in this world that she hadn't really fucking decided to get into herself, you know, and that's been a lot of mad navigation. They're pretty, they're not that traditional in that respect, you know, they're kind of like, you know, you, you know, we make our own decisions and do our own things. So there isn't a pressure. Yeah, that's fair. But now touching on to... P- um, Pavan or PAV4N has oh, yeah. really touched on lightly about the reinvention um, and having to, like you said, wake, you know, been 20 years since you've woke up in the same position. Funny, it's all full circle, but at least you're in a, I suppose, a comfortable space. So yeah, exactly. what, what was that, what's that journey been like? Like, cause I know, I know you've obviously got the work and you've, you've touched on it, but really and truthfully reinventing yourself now as a solo artist coming from that kind of group, group status. Um, I think in the beginning, as I said, it was like before I had before I had it figured out. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, you know, I hadn't really figured it out. But once once the idea crystallized in my head, we went on this when we were doing a promo for Tutu Karma. We went on DJ Limelight and Candyman show, and they sent us some beats to rap on. They had all Indian samples in them, and they were sick. And that's that that was when it clinched in my brain because you know I know. Like having worked in India for like the last seven, eight years, taking all of the electronic people out, like all the drum and bass, and you know, we put the first major laser tour in, in India, and seeing all the all the little new young producers coming up, and also the people that we know for the last ten years who were starting to really kill it there, you know, seeing that happen, but then seeing the hip being a part of like the hip hop movement blowing up, and suddenly the entire country is united, and it's kind of it's like disrupting the caste system. It's like subverting the class system, which is a big thing in India as well. And it's the first time the people, the streets have actually got a voice. And it's like, it's like decentralization of power in terms of messaging and voice, you know, at a really important time when like right-wing populist governments and fake news and all of this shit is coming in really hard, you know, and putting a squeeze on it. And so that is basically, once I kind of, once that crystallized in my mind, and actually feeling like, yeah, I'm not going to be like me doing this in India, being an Indian person, having done the work I've done. I'm not going to be like some outsider fraud coming into the situation, mm. trying to like capitalize on, oh, this is big now, so I'm going to come here, you know? So between that and then kind of being in, like being inspired by like Cass is Dead is, a, is an amazing artist for me. Like seeing artistic levels that people like FK Twigs are doing, Seb Deliza, for example, really pushing the bounds with, just the, you know, into multidisciplinary stuff with like, you know, whether it's dance, fashion, art, music, cinematography, like all of that stuff and living in such a visual world now and kind of being kind of like a product of so much weird random shit, kind of want to crystallize that like, let me bring this blue persona back that we did in the contact video 10, 11 years ago, because that's still very relevant for India, but if any, like, for example, if anybody, any Indian or South Asian person anywhere in the world sees it, they'll be like, ah, oh, that's that. But it's mm-hmm. in a way that's never been presented before. And it's something that I did. And it's something that anybody, I don't, I was kind of curious. I was a bit like, 
it's a bit touch and go because like the situation in India is fucking crazy right now because in the same way that has kind of empowered all of these like right wing middle America Christians and co-opted that whole thing. They've done that in India because India is supposed to be a massive secular democracy. But the power of the government that's in power now is super right wing and they've activated all of these. They've kind of activated all of these super um, these religious groups in the name of nationalism, you know, in the name of national pride. So there's been a lot of activity there. But so this is a, it's an interesting balance because like. Yeah, it's it, it's it's interesting because it's. For me, like I know what my relationship with Hinduism is and Hindu mythology, and as an Indian person, I know what my relationship with hip hop is, and I know I know where I stand with it and what my intentions are. But the fact that there's all of these people, like the kind of shit that's going on in India right now, is like it's it's like Hindu fascism to the point where, like, if if something happens, like say for example, something happens with a celebrity, and they think that's a bit risque they don't like it like literally a troll tsunami can be activated they'll be getting death threats rape threats their families addresses being put pub you know what i mean that that level of stuff but coming from like this you know like position of religious kind of righteousness you know and it's really strange so i'm kind of like coming at it where it's like you know this is my interpretation it's kind of it's risky it's risky you know if i push the wrong, wrong people off it could go the wrong way but there's it's under it's there's so many ways this can go wrong, basically, but it's understanding like how to do it properly, but also get the message out and actually understand what the fight is and what the messaging is. So once all of those things kind of hit me and I like I was I understood that okay, there's a purpose for me making the music I'm gonna make. There's an audience for it. There's an audience I can create and unite around the world in terms of the South Asian diaspora, but also in terms of like integrating rather than being like an Indian hip hop party and the hip hop party, it's like, nah, it should be the same fucking party. You know what I mean? So mm. kind of bringing that thing close together. Also discovering so many ill, amazing producers from that, from that part of the world. That's what kind of inspired me to start the label. But um, just, I think just when all of those things converged in my mind and I found myself in a really unique position where I could do some fucking mad shit. And I was like, yeah, I'm good to go. So that was it, basically. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's awesome. of, yeah, man. And that's the beauty of hip hop is that it's the only, I would say, music or even the culture that's out there helping or creating platform to help yeah. people that normally wouldn't have the platform to put their music out. Yeah, or, or even, or even, more, even more than that, their message, the voice. Yeah, yeah the voice called? for the voiceless. You know what I mean? And that is so true. And also the, the beautiful thing about hip hop is that motherfuckers who are judgmental about what it is, they're like, oh, all of that, blah, blah, blah. They're missing all of these messages going under the radar. We're all, we're all communicating with each other in different parts of the planet about the struggle and elevating and educating each other. And it's going right in front of their face. They're not even seeing it. And that's beautiful. I was like, keep, keep being judgmental. Keep not listening. You know what I'm saying? It's all good. You know, maybe I should maybe I shouldn't yeah. associate it to it, but it feels kind of like you know them them cotton field songs. He's like, you think we just humming and singing along? Okay, you carry on. We really we really talking to each other within them, <laughs> them within that lyrical you're, sense. You're breaking down what they used what they call the Negro uh, hymns. That's what hip hop yeah. is. It's the new version of the old Negro hymns. Is yeah. that you're speaking in different languages, 
but we all understand. The Amplified by satellite, bro. Come on, now. let's go. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's because and it's because of that we can we can actually have these conversations and yeah it's just that's why i love hip-hop culture so much you know even as a kid from everything breakdancing emceeing djing like graffiti like it's just oh it's just a party within itself but it's just just so powerful and touching onto that well kind of to that is your visuals man like yeah. your videos like are seriously dope. I've been listening to, you know, your latest collection of, you know, your Pavan collection on Spotify. So make sure you guys go check that out. And also the foreign currency as well. Like I've been literally going back and forth from it all, but we'll start with your visuals. First of all, bro, you've already mentioned your blue man. Cause I was, in fact, I was half expecting you to be blue. <laughs> UK to, I was like, yo, but where's, where's the blue man? Where's the blue, 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 blue. But all jokes aside, yeah. Like what, how do you how 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 did you come up with the concepts and when did vi the, the visual presence become so essential to you know what you're producing? Uh, I don't know, man. With for, with foreign beggars, it was I think it's always been really important artwork and presentation from the beginning, you know. And uh, yeah, so we always when foreign beggars first started, we didn't really have too many music videos because you know the technology wasn't you know it wasn't as easy to pull it off with you know five hundred pounds back then. But um, the artwork was always on point and it was nice to live in a world where nobody had to know what I looked like. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I was not a pop star. Nobody needs to know. They just need to hear the tracks and they need to see the artwork. And that was enough, you know. But um, as we as as kind of YouTube kicked off and as it got later in foreign banks careers, we were bigger. We were like, all right, cool. We need to start doing proper videos. And then by chance, it's the people that we met. You know, I'd done the, done the track with Grems from France, Grems and Deceased La Peste. And then we did a video for that track. And then the director from that, Tony Chuan, that we met in Paris, I decided to bring him back for the contact video. And then when we dropped that video, it was a really beautiful time because YouTube was where everything was going viral. It wasn't Facebook yet. So we dropped that video. It was just after dubstep music had kicked off. It was big in the UK. It was, it was the biggest sound. And then it was just starting to go to America. It was, a, it was a, just before then. And, um, the video that we've done contact and it flipped into drum and bass at the end, just before that tiny temperature came out. So it was kind of bringing, it was kind of bringing the parties together because I think that was a time where people weren't doing the single genre raves anymore. You know, it was always, you go to a dubstep rave, you go to a drum and bass rave, you go to a garage rave or you're in the house room. This is about, about the time when the urban nerds were doing their thing and kind of starting to flip it up and it would be like hip hop party and grime acts and then so-and-so. So it was a nice to when it, all the scenes are converging and that, the impact of that video and what that did for foreign beggars career that was a thing that really propelled us worldwide because we were doing a lot we put a lot of groundwork in with touring from from 2005 we never made it a thing like we're going to stay just do shows in london we were like which tried to get out to every single city and uh that was the one that really kind of just took it up a level and then from there really you know it was just been important to just have the next level of visuals and now we live in an age where like Bro, Instagram is, you know, it's it's understanding how I'm going to play this. Because, I mean, I want to say it's, it's the only thing, but it's like, it's it's in, like by posting a picture up, there's so much you can communicate with doing it. So I just said, if I'm going to go out and go all the way, I said, let me just go out all the way out. So doing what I'm doing here, like you're looking at this picture here, but to be in this ancient temple looking like mm. that, 
what I'm doing and say what I'm saying just hits differently. You know what I mean? But then yeah. even with like even like with the outfit that's there, that's like a custom outfit that my my sister-in-law made, and it's kind of referencing, you know, like the saffron, the Hinduism, the ancient, but at the same time, it's just full swagged out silk tracksuit with like a le- orange leopard print. So it's just what's it? Literally, it was from hearing those beats with the Indian sounds, with the Indian samples and musicality that and then when i clocked that i could do you know bring the blue skin back everything started to converge so it's literally a right it's like 50 50 convergence of ancient hindu mythology whether it's in the philosophies of the things i'm saying or the colors i'm using or the aesthetic or the gold jewelry and hip-hop culture street culture you know streetwear those two vibes and it's not like even like if you look at the the typography here that's like that's that's, that's Brazilian picha chow graffiti style, but we flipped it and made it look kind of Hindi with it, you know. So it's mm. like it's just flip, it's just flip, it's just it's just kind of flipping both of those things and kind of having that as the common thread all the way through, which is kind of the the template for everything. Yeah, it's crazy because I because when I was looking at it, because yeah, it just has because I'm a, I do graphic design myself. That's also part of what high creativity is, and um as I mentioned before, doing my own bits, but like I, yeah, just jaw dropping. Um, Cause even like you're saying, even with this particular shot, it's just so much, it's almost like it is like literally a movie within itself. And I'm not just saying it to gas it. It's like visually really appealing to watch. Um, and I also, like you was mentioning with, you know, the Hindu flex um, and that Indian heritage, what Max of the hip hop, because the amount of drip that you've gotten out, as we call it now, quote unquote drip, the, yeah. some of the, them, <laughs> them, them got that gold. That's over gold. I'm not sure if you remember, uh, can I get you, <laughs> I'm going to get you sucker. Like for real, that's over gold if I've ever seen it, but it looks yeah so so cold man for real it's like i think the thing is that also what by doing stuff like this is like it enables so much cross collaboration as well you know so when you see that image there there's not only me in that image there's the person who designed the clothes it's the the girl who's done them or the person who's done the makeup artist or it's the cracks that i'm wearing or the location you know it's just like everybody's work coming together to create this masterpiece that we can all share with us and it's so funny that you say that like you know like it looks like a movie literally uh, like that that phrase you know that little cat that little cat that meme catchphrase yo it's gonna be a movie my life's like a movie i was like Fuck <laughs> it. i was like let me just make this shit actually look like a movie you know and that's that was the, that was like one of the little things that kind of twigged it in my head but the maddest thing is like once it once it clocked like i was bro i was imagine i was kind of like trying to figure out this solo artist thing what i'm going to do for about for a year and a bit, brother, and it wasn't hitting. Like, you know, since Ebo's been saying he wants to go and do his solo thing from Foreign Beggars from about 2017, you know, but I'm like helped it in the group, you know, but then I was, it was, it didn't hit. But then even when it did hit, and I kind of thought about the idea, the name didn't click until ages. And I wanted to use my own name somehow, but the name is a really common Indian name and not like, can't really search it. So that's why I put a four in, so it's searchable. Oh. But the four, if you pronounce it as foreign, so that kind of throws back to foreign beggars and a foreign, ah, so it still kind of nice. ties in. That's the clever. Like that. Yes, like like, that. Once, once, once it hit that, like, oh, I'm going to do Indian beats, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to be blue. From then, it's literally just snow, just opened up. And like the fact that it's not this kind of balanced compromise situation, I literally mm-hmm. the wildest shit that I could think of. I'm like, all right, who do I know? Let's go, let's get this popping, let's get this popping. So do you feel like you're at a place right now that you 
finally found value as an individual than as a group? Um, a group? I think I'm getting there. It's definitely a challenge because there's a you need to do a lot more in terms of yeah, it's 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 like even when it comes to writing a track, it's not I'm not I'm not writing a 16, I'm writing a whole concept and a whole track and all of that. Mm. And then I feel like there's uh yeah, there's a lot more I don't I mean I've done, I'm a bit fucking mad for trying to do this label at the same time and drop two records yeah. a week. I, I mean like I don't know what I'm doing. Um but I mean I do, but I'm just it's a long game thing. But uh mm. yeah, I de I definitely feel I'm able to really get my point. I mean I Again, as I say, like with Foreign Beggars, we were it was a very free place that we could say exactly what the fuck we wanted to say, what we wanted to say most of the time. I had to be a little bit more careful because again, I don't have a British passport, so I can't be as open as a low-key or I can't say as open as a Riz Ahmed when it comes to writing and saying the things I want to say, because I still have to apply for visas to go places, you know. So I that's been another little battle that I've had to deal with, but yeah. you know, that's kind of been preparation for how I'm going to do this super subversive thing, but keep it more like kind of surf the line. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And I think, yeah. yeah Cause I think it's important because right now in, cause May is a uh, mental health awareness month. Yeah. And you know, that's the big thing, especially with artists, the, the mental health aspect of it, how's it kind of, it drains you as an individual um, over, um, just over time. But, but overall, but how are you doing mentally over over time for yourself? What are you I'm doing? I've been all right, and I'm I've been I've been all right. You know, like as as I said, I'm in the situation I am now. Like I'm I'm in a safe place. I'm in around my family. I've got my studio here. I've got my paints here. I've got internet. I can do anything I want to do. Right. So that gratitude has kept me sane through this whole period because I'm like, this is some lucky shit. You know. Mm. Um, I think this last this last month it kind of went a bit a bit askew. Like I'm usually really good at like if something something's getting to a head, I'm usually good at either kind of wrapping it up and moving forward and not dwelling on things. But there's a few things that kind of went wrong, and then also coming up to Ebo's thing and a few interpersonal relationships, a couple of business things. There was quite a few things that converged at the same time, which kind of got got me in a situation where I wasn't letting things go as quick. Usually I'm like, yeah, cool, da -da, suck it up, move on. Or just compartmentalize it, not not deal with it, but just compartmentalize it, doesn't fuck the rest of your shit up. But I kind of found that I was getting into a space where I was being short with people, I wasn't dealing with, I was kind of not caring about finishing projects or like leaving conversations with people hanging. But then kind of found that like I needed to, there was something I needed to deal with and Kind of went and approached it and dealt with it, but also kind of just not being so hard on myself for not taking you know, taking space and time. I think the main thing is just communicate that you're going to do it so you're not fucking with other people's stuff. But then, yeah, just kind of take it at your own pace. You know, it's all good. We live it. It's mad being an artist because it's like fast pace, fast pace, fast pace, and everything needs to be perpetual, perpetual, perpetual. But, you know, you're only you're looking at it from your perspective. And if nothing happens for... You don't post on Instagram for a week. It looks like your whole career is slipping, you know, but you're feeling that more than other people are feeling it. You know what I mean? So I think the main thing is to just focus on just just take things at your pay, your own pace and be prepared rather than rushing things and just, just yeah, just do things at your own pace. I think that should be normalized more. It's like it's mad being an artist because like, okay, even when it comes down to like, okay, when am I going to, when's the album going to drop? When do the singles need to be done by? They need to be 
they need to drop on this date so that the press is done so that we can start like your album needs to drop in October so that you could do your national tour in November, December, so that you could sell out a big thing, so that you could do the festival circuit the next year. This is how far in advance you have to be, you know. But and this is I think people get trapped in that cycle where you can do that, but I think it's just again, it's like not being so caught up in the situational hype and just being prepared. I think that's the main thing that really I find really helps me is that kind of not trying to rush things out, taking time. And even if, even recently, I just had to do it for the record label. Things were getting on top, so I was like, stop everything, right? Every, like, we've got 60 releases coming out. We're moving every single one of them back. We're moving everything three weeks. Let everybody know what it is. But then we did that so everybody in the team had time and space to, like, just work through it, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. I think, I don't know, it's, 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 I think, sorry, man, if I'm going on a bit, man, but. No, keep going, man. No, man. We're all about caring about our guests' mental yeah. because sometimes people do interviews, they just want to know, what are you doing, this or that. We actually yeah. care about your mental health. Yeah. And that's what, we're, that's what we're all about, man. So go ahead, brother. I think, um, yes, yeah, the whole, the weird, especially, I think, being a rap artist or, like, you know, a, a vocalist, in, or you have to have, like, it's having these kind of different, I think any artist, I think it's even stranger in the States as well. Cause like, even if you look at the like actors, like somebody like, uh, what's his name? I can't believe I've forgotten his name. What's his name? The dude in Titanic, Leo, what's his name? Leo, Leonardo uh, uh, DiCaprio. Yeah, 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 like his name just keeps coming. <laughs> like even if you look at somebody like, somebody like him, he's got like, cause I'm not, some, uh, like he has like his own family persona right then he's got his wider circle persona then he's got his like public leonardo dicaprio tv persona and then he's got like his going out persona and press persona then he has his online persona and then he goes and acts as well so this is like four five six different personas he has to manage but at that level but i think it's kind of it's 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 a little bit strange when it's like and i think a lot of the people kind of the artists who are kind of in the hip-hop sphere because there's a lot of it's, we have a kind of strange thing where it's like you have your rap personality on track and then you have your real life, who you are. And then, but the thing is on track, you have to be real and authentic. But at the same time, it's like a, it's like an amplification and a big imagined version. Do you know what I mean? It's like your imagination, which you're putting out, but it's got to be real and all of that stuff. So there's already that dichotomy, but then being in a situation where you have to be a public persona all the time. I think a lot of artists struggle with that. And I find I was struggling with that as well because, like, even when I had to set up my, my own personal foreign bankers, my my own pub on Instagram, I was like, "What? So every day I got to post a picture of me sitting here, I'm doing this." You know what I mean? It's all a bit weird. So that was another thing for me to be able to take, remove my my super super personal life from, you know, the Instagram and actually create this world that's here. It's still me. It's still everything I'm doing. It's still my messaging, and it gets all gets gets through, but at the same time, I feel like there's a bit more of a protection where, like, actually, actually I mean, I'm, I'm kind of on the line because I still talk my shit and say whatever. It's still very much me talking, so, um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it's just another medium for artistic expression, you know what I mean? And I think rather than it being a purely egotistical or a promotional tool type of thing, maybe do something where it's like, you're, it's just, way that everybody's attention span is now it's like even if i dropped a classic album tomorrow 
you know, everyone's going to listen to it, give it their listen critiques. And then in three weeks time, all the listens are going to drop off and there's going to be another one. Mm. So it's the way that you have to do everything now is just drip feed, drip feed, drip feed, drip feed, drip feed. And it's like, yeah. just making sure that all the stuff that you're drip feeding is just the shit, you know, and it doesn't, you know, if it's crazy now, because I could go and do, I could just turn my Instagram live on and do paint myself blue, do, do, do a mad freestyle and that will fly. And I can put a track on featuring so-and-so, produced by so-and-so, yeah. and spend another £2,000 on a promo campaign and this and that and put it out. And it won't hit. It won't like do the same thing as a freestyle might do. So it's kind of finding that balance with everything. I'm not saying cheapen your art. Your art needs to be as mm. beautiful and rich as you can make it. But understanding that there's other things that hit. Like, for example, like look at TikTok for me now. I'm like another one. I'm, I'm, I've been here since MySpace, bro. I did the whole of MySpace. I did the whole Even Instagram, we came to it late, you know? So in, the, in this situation where like, I'm like, okay, cool. It's not that easy. It's not that like painting yourself blue just to do TikToks. It's like, come on now. Like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. But, but then again, it's like, you know, just the stuff that's there at your disposal that kind of enables you to get, communicate the message and set speed with, and you know, if, if I don't put, if I don't put this stuff out and it's there, I'm not going to, but the beautiful thing about social media things is it helps you find the people that you want to connect with and you care about. Like when I've stepped into this realm of embracing my heritage and showing that and doing it and representing the other cultures that I love, whether it's drum and bass or 140 or grime or dubstep, like I've really connected with a lot of the people, whether it's the artists or people who have a similar passion for it and discovered so many sick heads that, like I just have this new wealth of network of amazing people all over the world that we can collaborate and connect with. Like, you know, the same with it. It's like that hip hop mentality of like being like, like in 95, I'm a graffiti writer or, 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 you know, you can know you can go to any city and find who you need to find, whether you speak the language or not, and you're in, you know? So that's a beautiful thing about Instagram. And I feel like this is, this is this whole online thing that we have, it's been really beautiful for the fact that we've been stuck in our yard. So it's like, because I was kind of so prepared before, it means I haven't had to stop. I'm just keep, I'm just keeping it moving, keeping it moving. You know, I'm getting bored now. I'm getting antsy. I need to go to some parties. But... <laughs> I think we all are. You ain't the only, you ain't the only one feeling that, that pinch, bro. Like I'm, like it's mad because even when me doing Metro Fest, like it's my yeah. first gig in a while, and I only generally do one or two per year, anyways. But compared to what I used to be by being a radio, but even yeah. I'm gassed for, I don't know how I'm going to be or how I'm going to act at all. You know, it's just, cause you just, you're just so, now we've been so used to this level of things, but taking away from what, yeah, exactly. Yeah, bruh, don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. King Crusoe needs to stay behind closed doors. That's my other persona. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. You don't want to meet that person. Um, but I definitely, but I definitely take away from what you're saying in the case of taking pace, because yes, you're right, especially when you're trying to do a lot. Like even for instance, as you mentioned with you know foreign currency, it's like you've um you've got quite a few artists already. They are all super talented, but you know thanks to the internet and such, now I believe you've got people that are dotted all over the world basically in order to make this whole thing you know work. But how are, I mean, how are they finding the whole experience and you as well? Because, I mean, you, I know you've touched on it a bit lightly, but, you know, you're now 
individual artists, but then now also you're the head of you know this this incredible label with some serious talent. Great, man. I think I think f- for me the way that I've, I've come into it is like having been worked with so many different labels and situations. I know when I felt buoyed off. I know when I felt like my shit wasn't looked after properly. So for me, in this perspective of being like creative director or A and R at a label, it's like there's three things which are really important. One is how we service the artists and how we communicate with them and a lot you know there's so many different types of artists some people have never put a track out in their life we've got some veterans so just making sure that everything is transparent they understand everything and we're there to support them and they know that they've got everything they need in a timely manner and they know when they you know just basically servicing the artists properly then there's service in the industry so making sure that we're hitting up you know all the DJs, all the press, everybody who needs to get this information and doing that in a professional manner. But then there's also servicing, you know, finding the fans and servicing the supporters out there. Starting from scratch is really difficult. And that's kind of another thing why, also because I've noticed there's so, there's a wealth of beautiful artists, so I don't feel like getting the right type of platform. Um, mm. But I think like being, having a situation, like this comes back to, and what you were saying about taking your time. And I think this is a this is a hard thing with artists because it's like, because we live in this genera- in this time now where it's like everything is like immediate response. It needs to hype, the hype needs to happen now. But okay, the, the front facing hype is all happening now, but everything that's happening in the background needs to be the long game. So like all of this hype that you're seeing on Instagram from what everybody's doing, they're not there doing that right now. This is some shit that they planned three months ago. Do you know what I mean? And all of the next yeah. hype that you're going to be seeing is like, you know, I mean, obviously situational hype happens as well, but generally the overall plan, this is stuff that's all been prepared, you know. No one's, like, waking up like Drake and just living that mad life 24-7. He's in a place now where he can do that, and, like, that's the place that you want to aspire to be. If you want to aspire to, if you're an artist, to the point where you wake up every day and everything that you're doing is so poignant and, on, you know, current that, you know, like you record a track now, it's coming out next week and it's hitting the charts. That's where the fuck you want to be. I mean, if that's where you want to be, that's what you need to aspire to. But mm. I think like understanding and being able to separate yourself from like the situational hype of what's going on, understanding that that is a game that you play and you create, you create your own hype, but that comes with the preparation and looking at it as like a long-term strategic trajectory that you're going to take. And then you have the power to make the crazy decisions along the way. And once you're on that, on that trajectory that you're creating through the strategic decisions you're making, situation comes out of left field, like managed situational hype stuff happens. And then using those things to blow it up and bring the energy back to what you're doing is, is how I think, you know, things blow up. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of, sorry, what was the question, man? I keep doing this shit, don't I? <laughs> That's okay. Just like, I, I mean, you pretty much answered it anyways, because it's like, um, yeah it's just quite an it's quite an interesting thing and also these are the kind of conversations that you don't generally get to have or information that isn't out there or maybe it is and people just generally don't want to listen to it but that is you know the fact that you're actually taking the time you know with your artists and like you said some certain veterans you're working with and then you know newbies but yeah man i'm just i'm I'm not gonna lie i'm gassed like i've literally i've 100 followed your playlist because for both of them because i'm looking forward to seeing you know what's kind of coming out so we'll move on a bit 
to you know um your all all on black ep which you've just released well you've released not too long ago anyways and also some of your other tracks you've been releasing as well one of my favorites though i'm not gonna lie that i've had on repeat is moves with nutty p yeah y'all that track like the 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 beat is just bananas (laughs) and then y'all just kill it like i'm not gonna lie like fully you now you everyone i'm a music master you can see how excited i get bruh moves is (laughs) crazy and the the dmb the dmb remixes on um all on black as well just brava brava (laughs) yeah moves man i love that tune bro like again again see see that tune there like we made that tune like what two and a half years ago and nutty nutty was actually going to release that one on smiler's label but things just got like I don't know, they just didn't quite materialize. So I was like, let me put this out as, you know, as a collab joint. And again, I think it just comes down to just luck, but just being prepared, man. Just loving what you do, doing it regularly. So you don't have to be clutching at straws when the time comes, you know? So um, yeah, man, just, yeah. I feel like it, this this situation, this label is a, it's a dream come true for me to be in a situation where I can, all the, all the sick people that I've met throughout my life doing foreign beggars over the last 20 years and finally being in a situation, having some kind of like, I don't want to say clout because I fucking hate that word, but, you know, just having, you know, being recognized for the work that I've done that when I go into a conversation with people, you know, it's not like me cold calling. It's like they know that I'm serious about what I'm talking about. Being in that situation and actually turning around to like, my, one, one of my big agendas with the label is, for all of these incredible like South Asian artists who are falling between the cracks. It's like not even necessarily them. There's like loads of sick artists who are just not geographically in the right place to just kind of get into that. There's not a scene around them. So they're all getting recognized and popping off and, you know, just to be able to put them on and create a platform where everybody's, you know, all of these kind of like outsiders are kind of come together. We're building our own platform and network. It's, it's like, because we started from scratch and loads of the new artists started from scratch and we started in the pandemic and we started with no money. It's a little bit difficult, but the way that we're doing it and relying on like the consistency and the organic growth and the quality of the product, you know, it's, it's, it's a grind, but you know, as we build our relationships and as we keep delivering, I think, you know, want to become like a household situation where, you know, people know to come to us for good music or artists know that they can come to us and have their shit represented properly and mm. shown to a whole new selection of people that might not have you know had access to it now that's hard still so um but yeah so for anyone just make sure you can get on Bandcap. it's on all streaming platforms um oh no no i want to i've got other questions i've got two things to finish <laughs> off that are even music related but please continue okay, it's, it's music related again talking about the track breathe i love breathe you know you, you did you you uh, Sunny Jim produced it, which I, I'm a big fan of Sunny Jim. Sunny Jim, um, he's fire. So, can you talk about that 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 track, Breathe? Oh man, yeah. I think I wanted to do something because like all the stuff that I come out with at the, out the gate, I just kind of went into classic rapper eat everybody mode, you know. So, <laughs> like yo, please, yeah, you know, so when it came to breathe, I was like, oh, okay, I need like this, like Sonny and Vin. I've been speaking to them about this project, and it's cool because they're Indian bros as well. So I'm like, see them tapping into like the tapping into the old samples and flexing. I was like, have you because 
Uh, they, I mean, they haven't only been doing it with Indian music, but I was like, have you guys been doing it? And they're like, yeah, we got a little beat tape for you. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I heard the beat and I was like, yo. But, you know, the way the beat is kind of mellow, hypnotic, but it's kind of fast paced, but slow. It's got, it's like weird. It kind of reminds me of like, the old Looney Tunes, like, you know, like Dumbo, it's kind of got that weird, like, safari kind of, like, mm. night train kind of vibe, you know? so, <laughs> I don't know, like, so when I was, when I, when I approached that one, it was just, I th see, like, yeah, I just wanted to kind of just, I don't know, yeah, it's just, it, it just, it just came out, really. The, the chorus, yeah, I, actually, I can't even, I can't remember where I was when I wrote that, like, this is a new thing. Like back in the day, I used to remember exact time, place of all my verses. Now it's like, it's a mystical haze. I don't know where I've written things. <laughs> but yeah, it just felt really natural. And I think it's the kind of first, yeah, it just kind of came out. Like, I don't know, like the way that I write, I just get flashes of inspiration and then I just go with it. So um, yeah, it's nice. I, I kind of got to talk my shit and kind of give my perspective on it without being preachy. And it was more vibey and a bit more relaxed. Um, but still got the message there. It definitely, you definitely, definitely had the message out and it's definitely, I had not, uh, I just, I had to bring that out. That's that's one of my favorite joints right there. I'm just great, grateful that people listen to the shit, man. It's like, <laughs> there's so many people doing so many things, you know, so, to know that it's actually hitting people and connecting is like that's 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 a big thing for me, man. Mm. Yeah, no, I gotta say I did I did enjoy that. That and stasis as well. Um um is hard, very like wickedly hard. And it's like what I guess the other thing as well is because because you're as you've mentioned before, you don't have the interest of wanting to go that kind of celebrity based route. You're still core is listening and enjoying the actual music and the visuals definitely do help. And like, I just can't, fa I just can't thank you enough for that, bro. To be, to be really honest yeah. with you. Um, um, but also I'm actually interested because you had the, um, or you created the Brap app, I believe. Did you see yeah. an increase? Uh, uh, did you see an increase during uh, the, this whole plan or pandemic? Because I, I know, know people what? get funny about that, but. I, I can't take credit entirely for creating Brap. Brap was like my brother, Nikki, and my brother, right. Event, Rad. So there was a team of four of us on it. And uh, like my bro came up with the idea and then we just worked on it and built it together. And kind of like, because I've been, I've kind of like helped them with like the real world integration of it. What's whack, what's not whack, you know, what's gonna run. <laughs> In terms of getting people to do things, where is it like, you know, this is a, you know, my bro comes at it from a very like tech company perspective. I'm coming in at like a hip hop culture angle. Where is the, where's the line here? How's it elevating? How's it not like, using you know what i mean like and where is it this is relevant you know what i mean so all of that kind of stuff is very important but like bro it got to the point where like we got to about forty-four thousand subscribers on the app but for the last two years we were trying to get fun we were trying to raise the funds for it so we'd done our first like our first round got it to where it was but then um for the last two years we'd run out of money so we were just paying for it out, out of our own pocket um, but it just got to it just got to the point where we couldn't afford it anymore. So we were like, I guess we got to like, let this one go, you know? So yeah, just before the pandemic, man, that's when we, that's when we locked it off. 
This chick That's exactly my point, bro. I was because that's what I was thinking. Like that during that time, you that would have been it. It's game over, bro. That's that would that would have been the connection that saved Christmas. That's what I would say on that basis. Of, <laughs> but onto, I mean, once again, onto there's loads of things. I mean, I could have started this this whole podcast thing a lot earlier as well. So I've been told, but we move once again. We move as we need to move in decisions. So we're gonna finish it off on on an interesting one and a very beautiful heartfelt project chop it up uh, yeah man well as calling it the yeah yeah project no pun intent, yeah, um, yeah. intended but yeah yeah bro yeah, yeah. man like <laughs> you have i mean how did this all come about what made you say i know because you already got you mentioned with your heritage and it's obviously come across in your music so it's it's a given but this is big man like for real for real yeah, I mean, just wanted to give back at some point, you know. I mean, we've it's interesting because we've done so much as foreign beggars. We've, I mean, we've done different charity things, but because there were so many people in the group, there was like f f four of us in the group plus management plus tour manager. Even when we were like smashing it, we were still like on the breadline kind of thing. So we were, it was kind of harder for us to really like, you know, we could do one-off things where we could raise funds and give it to a charity or something, but like wasn't able to. Do something and it kind of just got me thinking i was like with all of these fucking artists that i know everyone's making mad money what if everybody just gave like a little one percent of their show fee that came back you know whether it's 10 pounds or 100 pounds a thousand pounds whatever like little one percent coming from everybody from a pool of 200 2000 artists or something that would create a, a beautiful fund of money that we could do interesting things with but in terms of like setting up a charity like that in the uk so much complication, so many, it just became really complicated and it just got complicated. But then I met these guys uh, from this thing called Drop for Drop and what they do is they kind of, they're kind of one of these NGOs that go straight to the point. They're not one of these big kind of conglomerates that has all of this shit going on. So they do this thing where they um, identify places that don't have access to clean water communities that are struggling because they don't have access to clean water people have to walk three four you know hours a day just to get it and people are getting sick so what you can do with them is just team up and raise funds or contribute towards building a single well at a time which is about anywhere between two thousand and three thousand pounds so and as you can see here like look at this the mayor Tamil Nadu in India right it's a population of 5,421 people now that well there gives them clean water for free for the entire population for up to 10 years, right? And that's, wow. for what? that's for what, 2,500 pounds? Do you know what I mean? So once wow. I cut this, this is too, bro, I was like, come on, this is ridiculous. We need to do this. We need to do it. So by doing that and bringing like a well to their, well to their community, that immediately changes the whole health game, the fact that they have access to clean water and also with all the women who have that much free time who end up being the ones who have to go and collect the water and come back, there's, they have like education programs and, and new business programs that they can teach them. And yeah, basically it's just, it's just ridiculous. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I've, I've spent, I've spent that much money on a flight to go somewhere, you know, because they needed me to go there for a show. What the, you know what I mean? Like I know people who spend that on a pair of crepes. So it's like when it comes down to it and actually being in a situation where I've got a big network and people care and people listen to me, it's like, it's almost like, it's like if you see if you see somebody drop twenty pounds on the floor, you saw them dropping. Mm. If you if if you don't tell them, it's almost like or if you pick it up, you know, it's not like you robbed it off of them. But if you don't give it back to them, that is 
your karma. So it's kind of like, what I saw it in my mind, how easy, not how easy, but like how much, like what, this is going to take me, what, half a day to get everybody to raise the funds to do this? Come on, man. Like to change that many people's lives for 10 years, it's like, it's, it's a no brainer. And I'm not even trying to say it from like, oh, I could change everybody's life and all of that shit. It's like the fact that you can just do it, you know, like, yeah, for no, real. Because, like, I mean, the lives, the lives that you're literally physically changing. Because when I was going through this, and it was that fact that that the the women and children have to spend a majority of their time to fetch the water or looking for clean sources of water, and yet we out here just literally treating aqua. And I'm here being drinking water all, all, you know, all through through the show, and yeah. just we get so used to yeah. just how fortunate yeah. we really are in those senses. And you're definitely right. Two thousand five hundred pounds, or even to three grand, people are paying up for PlayStation fives at this particular moment in time. But that's because of how it's been forced on but what's really encouraging is that it now gives these people a chance to actually get above where that yeah. that, that feeling that they've hit at this time and that's for me because i'm a creative i'm a true 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 creative and there's nothing better than having other people creating and getting inspired so it's like almost in just them talking for me from this angle having that that chance for them to discover themselves it really gets my you know tingles it's like okay i wonder what once they're not having to chase water and they can focus on the things that they enjoy, what is this going to look like? Yeah, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that, that's right, that's, it's a beautiful thing, man, because what you're doing is you, 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 you're, you're breaking those illusions of borders. You know, when you yeah. have humanity, that that right there kind of, like I said, it tears down that, that, that idea of borders because as, as humans, we create these borders, these separations between groups. But what you're doing is like, nah, forget that. Nah, yeah. my fellow kin man is struggling or kin woman is struggling. I'm going to help him. Yeah. Yeah, man. I speak you know, you know what the, the interesting thing is, is that like so many people are want to help, but they don't necessarily know exactly how. So if you mm. set up a situation where they can, you know, you know, a lot of people right now, if you said, Oh, you could save somebody's life for 20 quid. They'll be like, yeah, how, how do I save their life? You know, so do you set up a situation where it's possible and easy and trustworthy and they can see the results, then people will help, you know, like, and it's not, there's no expectation. You can give 10p, you can give whatever, whatever you're comfortable with giving to get it done, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's cool. It's nice. It's like, I would say it's always rewarding, but it's like, I just, you know, it's just one of those things where like, you know, I, I don't like, you know, the level of the, the differences that we have and the injustice, not, I wouldn't say the injustices, but it's just the systems that we have that have marginalized people so far to the point where they have to like drink mm. that kind of like well water with, you know what I mean? You know, do you imagine having to drink out of a stagnant pond is your everyday life. It's like, that does not work. You know, so uh -uh. yeah. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful thing, man. So, well, we're closing up for this one. Any anything else you want to plug or to to add at all there, Pavan at all, or Ish? Any last questions or thoughts before we let you go? No, no. it's yours, sir. Go for it, man. <laughs> I'm just glad to connect with you guys, man. I've been chatting for ages, bro. Like enough, bro. This is what we do. Like, look, this is what I I do. I do this without <laughs> recording. So, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. so for me, so for me, for me, this is just like it's just yeah. Yeah, for me right now, I think just like. Yeah, just follow up the label. Like, if if someone's reading this and they're interested, I think 
What's mad, if you like an artist, not even talking about me, but if you like an artist, just follow them on Spotify because that shit actually makes a difference to you hearing their music and them getting paid. So if you if you see their socials, follow them. But Spotify, if you see something on Bandcamp, buy it, you know, share the video because that's how artists are surviving right now. And that's why it's great. Okay, perfect. So for any of you guys who are locked in, you can check him out on PAV4N.co is one of the websites or 4N. So that's the number four currency.com. Check him out on social media, Instagram. Make sure you go like, comment, subscribe for our stuff as well. Go check out the All on Black EP and donate to the Yeah Yeah Project. And this has been uh, another fantastic episode i've got to say of the high creativity podcast hopefully you can join us in the future for some updates or just swing through for a chat man so with that we say peace love and all that good stuff